everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Match Slip Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Angeloni. I want to thank you for joining us today. If you haven't already, I invite you to check out our previous podcast episode with Millennium Games, located in Rochester, New York. But on today's show, we're talking with Pete from Star City Games. Pete, how are you doing today? Excellent. How about yourself? I'm doing well, thank you. So, Pete, how long have you been in the gaming industry for, if we start off with that? Uh, the gaming industry, it's probably been since about 1994. Uh, but before that, I kind of got my start in the industry or the business so uh, as a whole uh, through comic books, which I've been into since I was a child. Who's your favorite character? Uh, it's probably Batman. Okay, you're a big Batman fan. I'm a Spider-Man fan myself, so I was. So you're a DC guy. Uh, it's not so much that I'm a DC guy. It's just that the the Batman character kind of always appealed to me, like a, an individual who has no superpowers but is able to actually, uh, you know, like develop and create all the all the unique tools and and toys that he used and develop the skills and. You know, well, as opposed to like a Superman or a Spider-Man who actually have superpowers. Mm-hmm. No, completely understand. Yeah, I've always liked Batman as well myself for, for those reasons. So, Pete, I know you guys are located in Roanoke, Virginia. In comparison to, um, you know, maybe more well of the well-known cities in Virginia, like the one that comes to the top of my mind is uh, Fairfax. Yep. Where in proximity are you to Fairfax? Uh, so Fairfax is, is part of what they, is considered part of Nova or Northern Virginia. Okay. Uh, R- Richmond is a few hours South of that, which, which is another city that a lot of people are familiar with. And then you've got, uh, Virginia beach and all those cities and stuff, uh, over on the shore. But Roanoke is on the opposite end of the state in the lower left. Uh, like if you're looking at Virginia on a map, like Roanoke is the largest city in the lower left uh, seg- segment of that triangle. Okay. And how long has your store location been positioned in Roanoke? Has it always been there? Uh, since we opened the brick and mortar store. Yeah, we've been, we've been in Roanoke, uh, and it's going on about 30 years. Actually it is 30 years. Oh, wow. That's incredible. So you've been in business for 30 years. So if you were to take us back, what, what would you describe the store's origin story to be how it all came about? So at the time, it, it's actually a long story. I'll try to give you the the abridged version. But uh, my my, I, I was living up in Hagerstown, Maryland, which is a few hours north of Roanoke. My parents were living down in North Carolina, and they were working for me. We were uh, we were running comic book conventions throughout the entire United States, and at the time, we were the largest organizer of one day comic book conventions in the entire country on any given weekend, we would, a lot of times we'd be running seven, eight different conventions in different cities throughout the U S and my parents were working for me at the time. And, uh, one of the things that like, that was a a great business to be in. It's always, it's always, um, it's always fantastic when you can actually find a way to turn something that you consider to be a hobby into a career. Uh, but one of the, the, one of the things that I actually had an issue with, with that particular business was that because you were so reliant on third-party vendors, I mean, you, your your business sank or swam on the the willingness of those third-party vendors to commit and help you grow your business. And and so many of them at the time, this has changed over the years, but at the time, so many of them were so unprofessional. Uh, even though the events themselves were doing really well, 
I kind of got to a point where I realized that I didn't have control over my own business because I was so reliant on those third party vendors. And just so many of them were just so, uh, just so bad at what they did. And they, they didn't think long-term, they only thought kind of short-term, uh, understandably. And so at the time, so anyway, so I decided that I, I wanted to, uh, get out of that business and I wanted to open a, a brick and mortar comic book store. And I kind of looked on a map. I, I was in Maryland. My parents were in North Carolina. I looked for the largest city on a map that was in, in between where we were both living. That city ended up being Roanoke. We spent a weekend visiting the city, driving around, uh, looking at the other types of stores that were here. And we really felt that there was a, a tremendous opportunity for somebody with my connections and experience and, and industry knowledge uh, to open up a store in this area and do really well. We felt that the current stores, even though they were very good at kind of what they, they specialized in, we felt the area as a whole was very underserved and that there was a lot of opportunity here. And so we decided to all move to, to Roanoke, shut down that convention business and open up a comic book store, which at the time was about 800 square feet. Uh, that did very well for a while, and then uh, I forget exactly when it was. It was probably a year or two later. Uh, we had these four these four kids. There was a bowling alley next door, next door, and these four kids that had gone bowling, I guess, at the bowling alley. They wandered over to the store and they asked about this product called uh, Magic the Gathering, which I had never heard of before. And these kids, these four kids, and this this is kind of. You know, it's one of those don't judge a book by its cover type stories. Like these four kids look like they didn't have a dollar between the four of them. And it was very common for when you owned a store like that type of store for people to come in, look around for a little while and then ask you for something that you don't have with no intention of actually buying it. And that's kind of what I felt like these kids were doing that day, uh, you know, but I treated I treated them with the same respect that I would treat anybody. And I just said, you know, I've never, I've not heard of that game before. I don't have it, but I'll look into it, having no intention of actually looking into it because I never thought I would see them again. And then sure enough, like the kids came back the next day and asked the same question, asked if we had any magic yet. And I said, no, I forget exactly what my exact words were, but I kind of blew them off again. And then they came in a, a third day. And when they came in on the third day, I, I kind of decided that I would actually really look into it if for no other reason then to order the product, have them come in, say, yes, I actually do have this product. Wait for them to tell me, oh, okay, well, we just kind of wanted to look at it and then not buy any of it. But what ended up happening was I ordered a, a booster box of whatever was out at the time. I it, it was revised legends. I forget what the set was. And uh, that exact scenario played out uh, th the way that I thought it would, except that instead of just saying, no, thanks, we were just looking those kids, those four kids, between the four of them, they just stood there and they, they actually bought every single pack in that box, one pack at a time. And I just stood there like kind of with my, I mean, my, my jaw figuratively open, not literally open, but uh, it just blew me away. Like I, in all my years in the industry, I had never seen anything like it because like the four kids were buying these packs one pack at a time. And they were opening them to, they were opening each pack together and they were all huddled around and they were like flipping through the cards in the pack. And all four people were just fixated on what that the next card in the pack was as they would just go through it. And then, you know, and they would ooh and ah over different cards. I had no idea really what anything was at the time. And then, uh, 
they got through that pack and then they would just say, that, oh, that was great. Can we get another one? And, and, you know, like after an hour or two, those four kids had bought every single pack in that box. And it, it just fascinated me. So, of course, I immediately bought some more of that uh, of that that product. And I kind of started to learn about that product. And then those kids turned into more people who heard that we actually had magic. And it just kind of started snowballing from there. Would you consider that to be like the point where the business really took off? And and when it did start to draw that type of attention to the store by carrying that product, how did that translate with the comic sales on top of it? Do you still do the comic sales? Uh, yeah. Oddly enough, we actually got out of comics and then got back into them again uh, when we remodeled the store during, during COVID. But I'll get to that in a bit. Uh, but to, to answer your question... Um, the store was very small, so uh, like organized play, I guess, was in its infancy, but at the store level, it wasn't really a thing. So the store was basically just a mixture of products, and so everything kind of just, uh, I guess, like peacefully coexisted, uh, and, you know, no one product actually, there was no one product that, like, by our carrying that product, it, it kind of... Uh, like turned other people off or anything like that. Like everyone kind of just coexisted together and, you know, got along and kind of shared their love of, of comic books and games and, and, you know, all of those types of things. But, uh, at some point, a couple of years, well, not at some point, a couple of years later, uh, we expanded, we moved across, the, we bought a building across the street and then we started bringing in, uh, tables and chairs and stuff and offering, uh, organized play events. And it was then when we kind of really saw the um, the comic book collectors and the people who were wanting to come into the store and play the various TCGs, like the Pokemon TCG had come out by that point. And, uh, and there were tons of people looking for that. And the, the comic book collectors kind of just wanted to like mostly kind of just browse in peace and have their comic books, you know, be in as nice a condition as possible. Whereas the gaming crowd was kind of louder, more excitable. And, you know, like in between rounds of tournaments, they would wander into the comic book section and they would just kind of thumb through comics to kill time and stuff. But that really turned off the comic book collectors because a lot of the material, a lot of the comics and stuff were getting damaged and then put back on the shelves. So after a while, like this actually all kind of worked fine for a while, but as we got more and more into magic and eventually uh, launched a website and discovered eBay and started selling on eBay and just got more and more and more involved in magic. My personal passion kind of shifted from uh, comic books where it had started over to magic as I also began playing the game and going like traveling with friends to pro tour qualifiers and eventually qualifying for pro tours and stuff like that. And we made the decision at some point to convert the store entirely into a game store and face comic books out uh, completely. So essentially that interaction with those kids back then was the launch pad that really kind of shaped the trajectory of the business. Uh, yeah, that was the, like that's the exact moment in time that I identify as like it was that point where everything kind of shifted and like to, it essentially took my life and my business in a completely different direction that I never would have that I never would have expected. And the really funny part about that story is that one of those four kids, I don't know, I have no idea whatever happened to the other three, but one of those four kids actually ended, I ended up hiring him as uh, my first editor 
when we started publishing content on, like when we launched the magic website, we started publishing content. I hired him as my first editor. And then he later got hired by wizards of the coast to be the editor for what at the time was called the sideboard magazine. Uh, like now it's dailymtg.com, but it's the daily MTG is just the, uh, the current version of what at the time was the sideboard. And he was in, he was involved in the trading card industry for decades. I'm not even, not exactly sure where, like where he is or what he's doing at this point. But uh, yeah, that, that, that kid who got me started in magic just kind of went on to accomplish a lot of things within the, within space. Oh, wow. That, that's a really incredible story. And you had mentioned while you were telling that story that you got into magic yourself from that point and you wound up actually qualifying for, uh, to be able to play in the pro tour. Do I have that correct? Uh, yeah, I ended up actually qualifying for, for two pro tours. I qualified for uh, pro tour Dallas. I forget the year. I think that might've been 1994. Uh, the, the format was, uh, was standard and uh, the most popular deck in the format was a deck called Urnum Geddon, which used um, you would cast a large creature, Urnum Jin at the time, and then you would cast Armageddon, would give you a competitive advantage, and then you would finish the game shortly afterwards. And I, I, I felt like I had done a lot of research um, preparing for that pro tour, and I actually felt really good about things, but uh, unfortunately, the, that Pro Tour was shortly after, I think, the Mirage set had come out, and there was a new creature that was um, introduced in the Mirage set called Maro, and I, that creature just never was, it was never on my radar at all. This was like, the internet really wasn't a thing at the time, and so Maro was essentially like Ernim Jin uh, numbers five through eight, and so the decks that were playing that card basically were... They, it was a better version of the deck than the ones that weren't. And uh, and every game that I lost, or every, I'm sorry, every match that I lost in that Pro Tour was in a mirror match to a deck that was playing Mara when I, whereas I wasn't. Then um, about a decade later, I would qualify for another Pro Tour. That one was the, um, it was the two-headed giant uh, Pro Tour in Hawaii that uh, Jacob Van Lunen and, uh, God, I'm forgetting his partner's name. I think it was, Chris something or another. I'm just kind of blanking on it. I apologize for that. Uh, but they ended up winning because they figured out that drafting slivers was the, was the optimal strategy for the format. And most other people didn't figure that out. Um, I, I, w I went into that form or I went into that pro tour feeling extremely prepared. I felt like I had actually figured the, the, the format out and, and I, like I had identified, my partner and I had identified that you definitely wanted to draft two aggro decks because uh, the you started like you were you were playing with uh, two players, but you weren't starting at forty life. I think you were starting at thirty life. So the more aggressive you could play, uh, the quicker you could uh, the the quicker you could win games while people were kind of still trying to establish like a board position or board control. And that definitely was the right strategy, except we never, we didn't identify, unlike the people who won, we didn't identify that slivers were the best version of that strategy. Was that the point in time, like from that moment, like where slivers became the popular deck creature type that you see in Commander to play today? I don't think so because I, because this particular format was limited. So you so the the problem with slivers is that if anybody else that if anybody else in your draft pod 
uh, realized that slivers were as good as they were, then you would be competing with other players to draft the slivers. And even though the like, if I have a sliver and you have a sliver, both sli- both slivers actually get the the effects are cumulative. They're not they're not limited to just one person's slivers or the others. Uh, like if if I have a muscle sliver that gives all slivers plus one plus one, your slivers get it too. So if you have multiple people at a table that are drafting slivers the decks are just going to kind of get diluted. But most people at that pro tour didn't figure that strategy out. So the kids that the, the sliver kids, as I think they ended up being called afterwards, uh, who did figure this out, they pretty much were able to draft slivers without competing with anybody else at the table. And they were just able to put together. I mean, if you can just imagine um, drafting in a format where there's tons of slivers available and, and nobody else is drafting them. So you're getting them all like your deck's going to be incredibly powerful. Absolutely. Do you find these days, Pete, I know you're probably extremely busy. What, when do you get the time to play games yourself these days? Uh, I, I, I guess I don't really, I, it's, it's actually been several years since I've played a game of magic and the problem, it's not because my, it's not because um, I'm any less passionate about the game. I still, I still follow everything. As uh, I, I would argue that I actually follow things more closely than I ever did. My problem is, is that, and I think a lot of people who are in the magic, who who uh, like buy, sell, and trade magic for a living, can relate to this. Is that uh, I spend so much time immersed in this game and, and the industry and the game's culture that like when I actually do finally have some free time, the last thing I actually want to do is, is pick up another magic card because that's not, to me, that's not like taking a break. That's like, you're still working. Of course, you're not able to separate the job from like your actual free time away from it. It kind of blends itself together. I completely understand that. So what drew you overall to the business itself in the early days? Uh, to what drew me to the, the business as in the comic book side of things or the magic side of things? To want to start the business essentially with, you can use both, uh, both is fine since the comic started it. I'm just curious, like what made you want to get into it as a business? Obviously you were a fan of the hobby, but what um, made you want to go to that next, next point with it? Well, it, it actually started when I, and this kind of goes back to the, cause I got my start in comic books. This kind of goes back to, um, I was uh, around 14 years old, I'd been collecting comic books for years at that point. Uh, my parents started taking me to conventions. These, I mean, they were they weren't really conventions. When like when I say convention, people get a different. I these are more like kind of like one day, um, like baseball card and comic book type marketplaces. They were usually held at like VFWs or Knights of Columbus halls, and they would come. They were very infrequent. And so when they did finally come around, I would save my money up, and my parents would take me to them. And then of course I'd walk in the front door, and I would just spend all my money with the first vendor. And, and, you know, never see another vendor in the room. And this, this kind of was the case for years, but I was, I was super happy because I just loved comic books and still do to this day. Uh, but then at some point, uh, one of my frustrations, because like I was buying all, all my comic books in my local town, I was buying them from like a, a convenience store. We didn't actually have like real comic book stores in my area. One of my frustrations was I would go to these conventions and nobody ever actually had bags and boards or collecting supplies. So I got this this um, 
what I thought was a genius idea that nobody had ever actually thought of. I would soon realize that I was completely wrong about that. But I got this idea in my head that I was going to start vending at conventions and all I was going to sell was bags and boards and these collector supplies. Because if I was having this problem, I was sure everybody was having this problem. And so I just felt like there had to be like a ton of money to be made. And somehow none of the other vendors in the room, most of which had been doing it for like 20 years or more, had ever figured this out. So like I just thought I was super clever. But obviously, like I, I very quickly learned that the reason why they didn't do that they weren't carrying those, those things is because the market at those events just wasn't there for it. But I was still enjoying myself. And now I was getting to see things kind of from a different perspective, from the perspective of a, a vendor behind the dealer table. And, uh, and over time, I just kind of watched the other vendors, what they would do and what they wouldn't do. And I kind of just kind of took it all in. And then at some point I decided, you know, I've got so many comic books and I've got way more than like a lot of stuff I just don't even care about anymore. I, I, I don't I haven't read in years. I'm just going to slowly start bringing some of my comic books to these shows and selling them off. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And then I just kind of started buying collections. And I was a young kid and I was super passionate. I was full of energy. And a lot of these vendors were they were experienced, but they were, uh, you know, like they were. Uh, like they didn't, they didn't have that fire that somebody who's discovering it kind of like for the first time and has that type of energy and that type of passion have, like they'd been doing it for decades. And a lot of them were kind of just, you know, kind of worn out and tired. And so here I was this 14 and then 15 and then 16 year old kid. And I just, the more I kind of immersed myself into it, the more like, like I, like one by one, I just kind of started buying, selling and trading these experienced vendors just under the table. Like it wasn't even close. Like I was just like they were having miserable shows and I was having an incredible show. And I would have, I would have an incredible show no matter what the circumstances were. And it almost kind of seemed like no matter how busy it was, they were always having a terrible show. But in reality, like it was just like they kind of had lost the fire. They just didn't kind of have the hustle that I had. And so I was just buying, selling and trading them under the table. And then it kind of just kept growing and growing and growing from there. Eventually, I got my driver's license. I started driving myself to these events instead of my parents having to do it. And then I would start going further and further away. So like it wasn't uncommon. Like when I was in high school and a lot of other people were spending their weekends partying and stuff like for, for me, a typical weekend was I would get out of school on Friday. I would go home. My parents would help me load up a minivan and then I would drive to some random city, you know, like, so for example, I would drive, you know, six hours or seven hours to Pittsburgh. And then I, I was trying to save every penny I could. So I wouldn't get a hotel room. I would just sleep in my van, no matter what the temperature was, no matter how cold, no matter how hot, uh, which was miserable, but I would sleep in my van. I'd wake up the next day. I'd set up, I would do the entire show by myself that show would end and then I would drive to another city. So I'd drive like three hours to Columbus or Cleveland or something like that, do the exact same thing again, wake up on Sunday, set the whole thing up myself, do another show, break the whole thing down afterwards, and then drive like seven or eight hours home. I'd get home at like three o'clock in the morning. I would crash. I'd get a few hours sleep and then I'd wake up on Monday and go back in school. And I did this for, uh, uh, you know, probably uh, a sizable amount of my high school years, at least, 
at least like 40% of my, of my, my later high school years. And most of the people that I actually went to high school had no idea that I was doing this on the weekends because at the time this kind of stuff wasn't cool. So I, I didn't advertise it and they weren't asking. So that that's incredible that you were doing it all by yourself and driving yourself and pretty much doing it without any help whatsoever. I, I can imagine that probably was the, you know, the catalyst that helped you create, you know, the SCG con that events that you have today. I would imagine that was a big help from all the, what you learned from the past. I, uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like over the years, I, I, I went to, to bigger and more complex type of conventions that had way more bells and whistles than these kind of one day marketplaces that I used to vend at. But yeah, for sure. Uh, like, uh, as I would eventually kind of, uh, dip my toes back in those waters, like all of those experiences kind of helped me, um, kind of figure out what I wanted and what I didn't want in my events. What do you feel in regards to conventions themselves? Like let's take the SCG con, for example, how have you feel that's helped grow the brand and and expose the brand to people who aren't familiar with the store in Roanoke, Virginia? Well, like the SC, the SCG Con and previously the SCG Tour, uh, like none of that stuff actually really exists so much to promote the brick and mortar store as much as they exist to promote the website. But the the main reason why we started the the SCG, what would go on to become the SCG tour. Like originally what we were doing, I think they were actually like, they were just 5k events. Um, and it wasn't so much about the branding as much as it was, uh, we, we needed to buy large quantities of cards to fuel the, the online website and that entire machine. And the problem was like, there were a ton of, there were lots of events at the time. There were Grand Prix and Pro Tours, uh, back then for magic, but, and those were great. But the problem is, is that, or that I ran into is one, there weren't enough of them, uh, or, or there definitely weren't enough within a reasonable travel distance, or, you know, maybe that's just restricted to the U S but either way, there definitely weren't enough of them, but more importantly, I didn't like the idea. And this kind of goes back to my old, uh, like when I was running the comic book conventions back in the day, and I was reliant on those vendors for the success or failure of what I was doing at the time, I didn't like the the idea that uh, that I was reliant on being able to set up at somebody else's event in order to acquire cards. And if for some reason, uh, like Wizards of the Coast or one of the event organizers was to just say, you can no longer vend at these events, like all of a sudden my entire business would just grind to a halt because we wouldn't be able to to acquire enough cards. And so in order to make sure that that never happened, I decided to start running those events myself, myself. And it started off with us running, uh, the, like those 5k type of, of events with like based largely on inspiration from another, uh, organizer and now store owner. I think he's still a store owner to this day. His name is Brandon Moody out in, uh, I think he's in Louisville, Kentucky, but he had started running those types of events and, and he did a great job, but I, I just thought that there were probably ways that I could do it better. And so I kind of took that shot and thankfully it ended up working out, but, um, eventually like not only would I go on to, to run my own events, but I would also become 
one of Wizards of the Coast premier event organizers, one of which was also, Brennan was also one of those. So this, a premier event organizer at the time meant for the most part that when, like we were the, the organizers, we were the, the entities that were running the Grand Prix. Wizards of the Coast was contracting us to run the Grand Prix for them. Um, and, you know, like just like I, I try to do with everything, we, you know, like I looked at how Grand Prix were being run and I felt like that I could, um, you know, there, were, there was definitely some room for improvement. And so I you know, we Wizards of the Coast gave us, a, gave the organizers enough freedom to kind of, you know, like we had to, we had to operate within a certain set of guidelines and, and restrictions. But then beyond that, they gave us the freedom to kind of do a lot of things in whatever way we wanted to do them. And I don't know how long you've been involved in Magic, Frank, but um, if you were around back in those days, which was the, the, um, you know, like 2000, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, like we, we went a little bit nuts with, uh, with those opportunities. And we, we, uh, we got some, we posted some crazy attendance numbers that if you, uh, like, if you look up Grand Prix, like Magic the Gathering Grand Prix attendance on some, on like something like Wikipedia nowadays, or any site that tracks those attendances, um, most of the larger attendances throughout the world that were ever, that were ever, uh, posted for Magic Grand Prix, like with the exceptions of, of events that Wizards kind of designed themselves to be monstrous, like like Grand Prix Las Vegas, where you know with Modern Masters and all this other kind of stuff. But like you've got all these like random Grand Prix that are kind of peppered in that top ten, top fifteen that posted these monstrous turnouts that you know like you never would have imagined that a city like Richmond, Virginia would break the record at the time for being the largest Grand Prix ever held in the world with like over 4,000 people in that Grand Prix. And then at least a thousand more people there being held in multiple convention centers across the street. And it was just, it was just complete craziness at the time. But I, I, I love that. Like I thrive in that type of environment. And then we did that, that exact same thing, like over and over and over again. We're going to take a quick break from this podcast to talk about our sponsor, Cardboard Shuffle. Cardboard Shuffle was our 10th podcast interview here at The Match Slip with store owner Mark. Mark has expanded his brand and has produced his own card sleeves called Shuffle Shields. Shuffle Shields come in packs of 100 premium matte card sleeves for standard size trading cards. They contain no PVC and are acid-free. I have 17 packs of Shuffle Shields card sleeves to give away to listeners of the podcast and followers of The Match Slip on social media. Requests for a free pack of card sleeves shipped for free to you will be processed on a first-come, first-served basis. To receive your free pack of Shuffle Shields, you'll need to send a screenshot that you're following Cardboard Shuffle on Facebook to frankatthematchlip.com. Good luck, and back to the episode. And you've had a lot of well-known players to play in your SCG back when it was called the SCG Tour at the time, and I've always thought like your coverage uh, of those events were, were superb. I, I just liked how the whole dynamic fit. It felt very much like watching a sporting event. And I actually, before I became familiar with Star City Games, I used to you know, watch just the Magic streams at the time when they were streaming Grand Prix. But once I found out about Star City Games and I saw how you were talking about kicking up the production level up a notch, it was so clear as day to me that your product that you were producing was superior. And 
I just loved what you did with that and the people that you got playing in the events. It was just a very enjoyable thing. I just pretty much not really a question, more of just a compliment. I, I appreciate the kind words, but at the same time, I would have to give a lot of that credit to my, my, both my in-house team and the, the people that, um, the people that put themselves in front of the camera at those events. Like, I mean, uh, you know, Ced Cedric Phillips, who is still, uh, still doing, uh, you know, commentary and broadcasting and stuff for Magic's Pro Tour to, to this day. Uh, Cedric was a huge part of that. And he was extremely passionate about Magic coverage. And he, he believed, like in his belief that it could be better than the product that existed at the time. And, and you know, we tried to, we tried to support him in the things that he wanted to do, like within, within reason, obviously we, you know, like we butted heads on a lot of things, but I mean, Cedric is, I think, I personally think that Cedric is the absolute best commentator in magic's history. And I'm really glad to see that he's still in front of the camera doing something that he's so passionate about. Yeah, same. I do think he's a great commentator also, and I thought he was one of those people that really made bring and brought the SCG tour to life in a lot of ways. Well, I mean, to, to be fair, our commentators also, the, the people who commentated at our events uh, also had a level of freedom. I don't want to say they had complete freedom uh, to, you know, do or say whatever they wanted to, but they had a lot more freedom to kind of like let their personality shine through as opposed to when they're doing coverage for like something that's more official and more corporate and you need to like, you know, check all, all of these boxes. Um, and it, it, like on one hand, it's a much more professional uh, broadcast with a lot more resources behind it. But on the other hand, you're kind of hamstringing people's natural personalities and it's, and, and so much of it. And you kind of see this with, um, you, you know, the more successful, uh, influencers nowadays w within the magic space is that when you know, like, if you've got the right type of personality and that personality is able to kind of come through that camera and kind of, um, and kind of reach the person who's watching at home or on their phone, um, like that type of stuff, a lot, most times is actually a lot more entertaining than somebody who's just doing like this corporate type of broadcast. And I, and I think, I think a lot of that was why, um, and again, I mean, this is, this goes beyond Cedric to, you know, it's Cedric, it's all of our, the other commentators that we worked with, um, you know, Patrick Sullivan and, and God over the years, probably dozens of others, but, and then our entire in-house team, but they just, they, um, I think that's why so many people actually looked at our coverage at the time as being like, quote unquote, better than Wizards of the Coast official coverage. It, it wasn't that it was necessarily better. It, I think a lot of it, well, actually, in many cases, it, it, pro it probably was. But, I mean, but a lot of that was just because we were letting the personalities of our commentators, um, like we weren't handcuffing them and hamstringing them as much as uh, like doing a, a more corporate broadcast would would you know require them to do and it just the, the end result was it was just a more entertaining broadcast that more people wanted to tune into and tune in and and to tune in and watch 
Absolutely. Yeah, it was very entertaining to watch. And then you transition from the SCG tour to SCG con. How many of those are you putting on a year? Uh, we're doing we're doing about uh, 10 a year. Um, we c- could probably do up to 12 if the if everything kind of aligned, which it almost never does. So it ends up being 10. Like when I say if everything aligned, um, you know, like the venues have to be available, uh, you know, like the the you know, like we don't want to be in. Um, like, like Wizards has a magic con coming up. I think it's in Chicago in February. We would never, I would never do that. Like they can take that risk and I'm sure it's going to be phenomenally successful, but like being in Chicago in the month of February, like that would be an auto auto. No for, for me. Um, but, uh, you know, trying to sync things up, time things with, uh, with, uh, different set releases, avoiding holidays, uh, you know, there like we have 15 to 20 different criteria that we're trying to or I'm sorry, 15 to 20 different boxes that we're trying to check in order for us to consider doing an event. And so a lot of times what you would see is and I'm sure you've seen this before. If you've ever seen us do uh, like an SCG tour or an SCG con schedule announcement is you know, like most of the comments when people are talking about it aren't like, oh, I'm super happy that you're coming to this particular city. It's always, why don't you ever come to X or like, oh, this city, this city got snubbed again or any of that kind of stuff. But anybody who's ever done something like what we've done, where you're doing all that stuff that I'm talking about, and then on top of it, you're actually trying to avoid all of Wizards of the Coast major events that they're running. And then we're trying to actually put together a schedule by piecing everything together using all the options that we have left. Like, it's not that we're we're ever trying to like we're ever looking to intentionally snub a city. It's like a lot of times it's like, this is the only option that was available to us out of every city we look at on this particular day that fit into our schedule. Like, you know, so sometimes people will wonder, well, why are you in Cincinnati on this weekend? And then like two months later, you're in Columbus, which is only like two hours away. It's like, because that's just the way it all worked out. And, and wizards, like Wizards domestic, like back in the day, their domestic Grand Prix schedule kind of worked very similarly. And I know that because I was a Grand Prix organizer. Like I know um, how much they tried to spread the stuff around. And I know all the issues that they dealt with in trying to actually do so. What would you say is the biggest issue when it comes to scheduling a venue of, and to, to organize an event of this nature? Uh, what is the biggest issue? Um, I don't know that there's a, I don't know that there's one biggest issue. It, it just has to, you know, like we have 15 to 20 different boxes that we're trying to check. And then, you know, like we, we contact all the venues, we, we figure out which venues check which boxes, and then we just try to piece the whole thing together. I don't think there's any one particular issue. Okay. So it's, it's kind of taking what's available at the given time. And then like you were mentioning earlier, having to balance it out against what wizards may be putting on at the time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you could potentially argue that that's the biggest issue is having to avoid everything that wizards is doing because like, if there's it, like, if there's a, a, a magic con or, you know, back in the day, if there's a grand prix in Chicago, well then that actually, I mean, in the case of magic con, it would probably blank everything. We probably would just skip that weekend altogether because we would want to vend at that event ourselves. Um, but if it was a Grand Prix, we would definitely look at a 
certain radius around that area, we would blank that ent- the entirety of that radius as just like cities within this radius just aren't options on this weekend. Sure. No, that makes sense. And so I guess overall, when, when looking at SCG Tour versus SCG Con, they're, they're pretty much very similar in my eyes um, because I even see, you know, that there is people still, you know, recording coverage of, you know, the major event that's held at these conventions. Yeah, I'd say that's accurate. It's obviously very different uh, than it was back in the SCG tour days with, you know, like the commentators and the production and stuff on the scale that we were actually doing it back then. But there are still people that um, a lot of it, I I think the people that do it, a lot of them uh, refer, they call it backpack coverage, something along those lines nowadays. But there's a number of people that do that. And then they, like we tried to support those people uh, by giving them the access that they need and the, um, you know, like if they need a designated area or designated seating, we'll try to accommodate them. Um, and, but then we let the, like, we allow them to do that coverage and then upload it to their own websites, uh, or stream it on their own Twitch channel and then monetize that coverage themselves. Like we're not, we're not trying to monetize their doing coverage. Like it's, it's sort of like, they're doing something that benefits us. And so we're trying to do something that benefits them by giving them that access and just allowing them to do it. It's just a win-win. Definitely. Without question. Is there any interest from your side of things, whether or not you could talk about this right now, whichever way you want to go is fine. Is there any interest in bringing back the SCG tour and it's in its full capacity, how it was at that one point in time? I, I would never say never. Like I, I definitely miss it, but I also think that there's, or I also believe that there's a lot of, well, I, I don't, I'm sorry. I'm, I know that there's a lot of things that have actually changed on wizard's end and within the industry. And then on our end as well, uh, there's a lot of reasons why I just don't believe that that model is, is viable any longer. Uh, like the, like the SCG tour was the, like the main reason I mentioned this earlier, like the main reason why the SCG tour was originally created was to ensure that we always have avenues to acquire cards. Well, we evolved that over the years to where that's no longer an issue. Um, but the SCG tour was also created to like the SCG tour always existed to complement what wizards of the coast was doing at the time, most of which they're actually really no longer doing. And so it's difficult like, I don't want to say that, or I'm not, I'm not trying to say that without Wizards doing like Grand Prix and stuff or what they organized play the way that they were doing it at the time, that the SCG Tour isn't viable. Because obviously, if we wanted to, to go in that direction, we still certainly could. But um, it would be a lot more difficult because of the way that the SCG Tour was designed um, to complement what Wizards of the Coast was doing. And without them doing that, it's, it's exponentially more difficult. Now you've got, um, you've got a number of other organizers that have kind of, I don't want to say copied because they're doing a lot of things that are different, but they're kind of, they're utilizing a, a, a model similar to what we used to do with the SCG tour, but they're doing it on a much smaller scale. And that seems to be working for them. That's great. Um, but for, for us, like the evolution of what was previously the SCG tour into what's currently SCG con is just what, what works best for us now and what we foresee working best for us going forward. I never say never, but I, I have no plans on going back to that previous model anytime soon. Understandable. And so outside of the convention side of things, when it comes to the store itself, the brick and mortar store, 
what are your day-to-day operations like with, with managing the store and the number of employees you have? Like how many employees do you currently employ? Um, on any given day, it's somewhere between 130, 140, but that includes like, that includes every aspect of our business. Like our brick and mortar store itself is probably only about six to eight. But when I say 130 to 140, that's talking about or that's including the in, like entire internet mail order side of our business, um, like our entire marketing department, the like everything that we do in terms of uh, SCG Con, our entire buying and acquisitions department, our warehouse department, our fulfillment department, our IT department, our HR department. It's the entire company. And what is your role for a day to day aspect of of working within the store? Like, what do you what do you do? Um, you know, you have your employees doing their tasks, but what is your specific goal? Is it like buying product? Is it, um, you know, obviously managing payroll or something like that? My, my role nowadays is very different than it used to be and that, that it's been over the years. Um, like now I kind of have to, I guess my role is, to, is to, like nowadays is to try to find people who are really, really good at what they do, uh, put them in the roles that it, I need them to be in and then give them the resources and support that they need to, to be able to do their jobs uh, to the best of their abilities. But a lot of like a lot, a lot of the stuff that I used to do back in the day, like there was a time where I was SCG's sole buyer and I was the one who was personally traveling to events. And I was the one that was actually doing all of our buying. And like, now we have an entire buying department and I'm, you know, responsible. Like I oversee the person who oversees that department but uh, it's 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 not the same. It definitely was more fun back in the day, for sure. So you mentioned the buying department. So I've I've heard this talked about online before, but I'd rather hear it from you directly. I've heard that Star City Games opens the most boxes, like sealed product of any store. Like you guys, pretty much almost have any like single card that uh, a player can want. I I mean, there's no way for me to say. Like I can tell you that we we definitely open a lot of product when new sets are released. I can't say that we open the most because I have no idea how much product other stores are opening. Um, and, mm-hmm. and certainly when, uh, like when a set is initially released, the amount of product that we're opening allows us to pretty much have most things in the set. I would have liked to have had that one ring card, but we didn't open that one. Uh, but, uh, you know, but we opened a number of the other, you know, serialized one rings and then we had everything kind of below that. So, um, so that that's certainly the case for a while, but eventually, you know, as you sell through that initial, like as you sell through that inventory that's initially opened, every set kind of just becomes like the ones before it, where you need to add stuff to your buy list, and then you need to, um, you know, you kind of need to he- like headhunt those individual cards that are in the most demand and buy them individually on the secondary market. Do you find with the rate of which product is being released now, from a business standpoint, is that a challenge? Uh, it's actually not so much. Well, so the answer to your question is yes, but the bigger issue is not, the bigger issue is not so much the, um, the rate at which product is being released as much as it is the number of cards that are being released within each set. Like that's, you know, like when, when wizards releases a new set and there's eight variants of every single card in the set, like that gets to be a bit much. Yeah, I've heard the same thing from from other stores as well, because if we look back in, in the past, it was really just you had the regular card and maybe it had a foil companion alongside of it. 
Yeah, but I mean, the 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 thing is, is that like Wizards of the Coast is they're they're creating their products in order to move as much of that product as they can in its sealed form. Like Wizards doesn't Wizards isn't the one dealing with needing to create different versions on websites to you know to sell and having to keep track of buy list pricing and all this other kind of stuff. So a lot of what they're doing is just they're doing it with the intent or with the intent of um like what's or with the mindset of like what's going to sell the most the largest quantity of this product in its sealed form and then the the secondary market retailers that choose to be involved in the singles market are the ones that kind of have to deal with things on that end i see and I guess overall for the store itself, and I could tell, you know, the store from what you've described is doing well. Um, what would you say, though, if you had to pick something would be considered a pressing issue at the moment? I know it differs from store to store, but with you being a bigger store, I'm curious what the, the difference is there. Well, I mean, uh, I guess one more more recent example of this that I could think of, you know, would be the like what just happened with the release of Disney's Lorcana set. Now, I, I know that we're mostly talking about magic, but um, like Disney's the Disney or I'm sorry, Ravensburger just released uh, a Disney themed set called Lorcana. It was one of the most anticipated products of the year, and then the the amount of that product that every single store was allocated was just nowhere even close. Uh, enough to meet the demand for that product. And so every store kind of had to scramble to figure out how they were going to handle the small amount of that product that they were allocated. And it kind of seemed like no matter what stores did, like there was no way to, to make all of the people wanting that product happy. Yeah. I, I saw there was a lot of hype around it and I saw, you know, a lot of attention drawn to it on, on social media as well. I didn't realize the print runs were so low for it, for the stores at least. I don't know. I, I really can't speak to how low the print run was overall, but it was certainly low compared to the demand for the product. That makes sense. And, and, and from past experiences, like when a new product comes out, you know, whatever game it might be, from your experience, is the amount of product that you can receive or order from the distributor seem to be consistent over time or does that fluctuate based on the product? Uh, it fluctuates based on the product. Like Lor the way that Lorcana handled the allocations, it was basically like you were you were one of three levels, and there was nothing beyond that. Like you were either X, you were Y, or you were Z, and it didn't matter how large of an account you were, how small of an account you were. Like you were slotted into one of those tiers, and there was nothing really you could do about that. I see. Very interesting. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories related to the purchasing side of, of the business. And it, it's fascinating to me, but I can imagine at times for being a store owner, it could be quite the headache. Uh, but with that being said, um, what would you say regarding the store itself? Um, what would you consider a unique aspect of the store that maybe somebody visiting for the first time um, may not see it, you know, a, you know, one, a, a store local to them, or maybe another store in another state that they've been to, what would you feel separates your store apart? Uh, now we're, we're we're talking in terms of the brick and mortar version of the store. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. we've got a we've got a pretty incredible selection of merchandise. But actually, you know what? The answer to this question is going to be 
the fact that our brick and mortar store is tied to our online store. So if you come into our brick and mortar store, you have access, you have direct access to Star City Games' entire online inventory. And, and you can place an order for anything that we have available on our website. And we can bring that, the, bring that order up to you, like while you're there in the store, like that's something that the, that, like that's something that's very different than the type of experience that you're going to get in most stores. That's very cool. And how would you describe the layout of the store? Like somebody walks in for the first time, how would you give a little visual picture of that? Uh, it's, it's extremely easy to navigate because, uh, do, during COVID, we completely renovated our storefront. We went from, so uh, like our brick and mortar storefront was previously like for the most part, just like the, um, the like stereotypical, uh, like trading card game, uh, tournament center type model where we had stuff on the walls around the edges, but then the middle was just a bunch of tables and chairs for in-store play. And then COVID happened and, and, you couldn't run events and a lot of a lot of brick and mortar stores that previously kind of used that model including ours uh took the opportunity to to renovate in our case or just update their store and they pretty significantly reduced the amount of seating they offered for like in-store gaming and then they replaced what was previously a bunch of tables and chairs with a lot more merchandise now we kind of did that on a on a pretty significant scale where we completely renovated the the um the interior of our store we upgraded everything um but uh like if you if you walk into our store you can find whatever you're looking for just using the the signs that hang overhead and and kind of allow people to navigate through the aisles and find what it is that they're looking for how big is the store uh, the brick and mortar part of our store is only about 5,000 square feet, which is, is big, but it's not huge. Okay. And if money wasn't an option, this is my last question for you. I always like to ask this at the end. If money wasn't an option, what's one aspiration you have for the store that you would like to see come to fruition? You know, it doesn't have to be like something right now. It could be something in the future, but something that you've been thinking about. Oh, that's a that's a, a tough question. You kind of threw me for a loop there. But I, I, I guess uh, like one thing that I'm always actually thinking about is uh, like we've we've been looking for a larger facility for years. Like the degree to which, um, you know, the, like the seriousness with which we're devoting to doing so kind of tends to ebb and flow uh, depending on what else is going on at the time. But um, I guess the answer to that question would probably be either find a much larger facility and kind of open the 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 biggest and and most unique type of brick and mortar game store in the entire country and have that kind of be more of a destination location type thing uh or just open a second store that's kind of very similar to the one that we that we have currently and then potentially a third a fourth and a fifth or whatever but i mean i i've i've said that for years but my I kind of tend to go back and forth on that as I think most people who own stores do. Yes, of course. Yeah. I think that'd be very cool though, to see multiple locations. I sure do hope that comes to fruition for you. Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, you know, like, like right now I'm thinking about it and the idea kind of seems exciting, but then I'll get back in the office and, you know, like have a problem or two up in the storefront and, and then decide that I, I never want to have a, a, a second store and kind of just, I mean, actually I, I used to have two stores. I, I closed down and consolidated them into one. 
Oh, okay. So it's it's something you've seen in in a in a in a smaller sense, I guess, but not in the grandiose sense that you would you would love to see it if you know if ever if all the cards could align right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the the way that you prefaced your question actually kind of really affects the way that I think about that because you prefaced <laughs> your question with if if money was no object, but obviously money is always an object. Well, of course, you know, yeah. You you always have to account for that. But I mean, like if money was no object, then you know I would probably do all that stuff. Yeah, it's it's more. Yeah, the question is more along the lines of more of a wishful thing that that you would like, you know. And if it happens to occur someday for you, then that that's awesome. Yeah, you know, who knows? You know, we'll see. Yep. And well, I want to thank you, uh, Pete, for coming on the show. It's It's been a joy having you on and it's been fun uh, talking with you. Um, where could people who may not be familiar with Star City Games, where can they check out the store? Uh, the store is located in Roanoke, Virginia. The actual address is 5728 Williamson Road. Williamson is the the main uh, the main street that kind of cuts from, from one end of Roanoke to the other. And we've got a giant electronic billboard outside. So if you're driving down Williamson Road, you can't miss it. And online, they could just go to StarCityGames.com? Just StarCityGames.com. Awesome. Well, thank you, Pete, for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it, Frank. Thanks for reaching out. My pleasure. And for everyone else listening, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, if you would like to support the podcast, you could do so at Patreon.com slash TheMatchLip if you care to do so. Either way, no, no worries whatsoever. Additionally, we have launched our merch store. You can find that at TheMatchLip.com slash shop. If you are a listener to the podcast, you can get 10% off with the code MATCHLIP. Additionally, if you are a subscriber to the newsletter at thematchlip.com slash newsletter, you will get an extra 5% discount if you sign up there and we'll send you a separate code to get that. And with that being said, I hope you all enjoyed and I will talk to you on the next episode. Take care.